Welcome to Sony Music's Time to Talk. I'm your host, Sean Sennett. This week, we have the legendary Australian fast bowler, Dennis Lilly. Dennis terrorised batsmen playing in test matches against Australia from 1971 to 1984. He took a then world record 355 test wickets at 23.92. As impressive as they are, the figures don't tell you the whole story. Dennis really was the greatest fast bowler of his generation, and you could argue he was the greatest fast bowler of all time. Somebody once asked the West Indian skipper Clive Lloyd if Dennis would warrant a place in that quartet of pacemen they had in the 80s, and he said it'd be Dennis and three others. Dennis is a massive figure in the Australian landscape. He was a fierce competitor, supremely fit, and an integral force in helping bring cricket into the modern era. These days, he's a bit of a wine connoisseur, and he said, you know, if we were on the back deck with him for this chat... um, He was in Perth, I was in Brisbane, we'd be having a full-bodied red, a cabernet from the Margaret River or the Coonawarra. So if you have something handy, you should pour yourself a glass and sit back as Dennis talks about cricket, his life as a player, the people he met, the people he played against. There's some great music stuff in there when he talks about his favourite bands. And to kick us off, I'm going to take you way back to the MCC versus Western Australia in 1970-71 when Dennis makes an impact on the global scene. Here he is, Dennis Lilly. One of the great photos in cricket history is uh, poor old Jeff Boycott's cap going flying there at the Wacker. What introduction to cricket that was for you on the global scale, I guess? Yeah, look, um, I didn't realise it, obviously, at the time. Uh, you just run in the bowl as fast as you can um, and, you know... He's an Englishman and you just, you know, you hope you can get him out one way or the other. Well, um, I think what happened was um, it was probably obviously a pretty quick ball to dislodge his um, cap because um, Jeffrey Jeffrey wouldn't have liked that at all. Um, (laughs) Proud man he is. Um, But I think it more than me, I think it, it probably alerted selectors and people in the know around Australia that I was bowling um, pretty quick at a young age um, so that, that, that didn't do my cause any harm at all. It's a great story I think when you were first selected to play for Western Australia did you ask your dad to sound his car horn if you got in the team? Yeah we were, we were playing uh, club cricket at Perth Cricket Club Fletcher Park and mum and dad used to go to most of the games and they there at that club ground you could pull up and park right almost around, certainly around about a quarter of the perimeter of the oval uh, bordered by two streets um, and cur- and sort of curb and, and you know um, parking sort of areas and um, they were uh, they pulled up there and I we were about to go out I think to, yes to bowl field and um, I, I'd spoken to them I think just the night before that, um, look, you know, the team's about to be announced, the first team <clears throat> chance I am of getting WA team. And I didn't like my chances that much, but because um, there was a lot of very good fast bowlers around. And um, anyway, I just said, look, if, if, if it happens that I get selected, um, could you just toot the horn? And um, so, yeah, that, that's what happened, as it turned out. Um, I heard this toot 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 on the horn and then all of a sudden there's a symphony of horns around the, all the other cars <laughs> around the edge of the oval which was was quite uh, quite different and obviously brought a smile on my face. What a great emerging fast balls around at that time because when you were finally picked for Australia for that Ashes season against the Englishman here, you weren't the first choice, you're like number five or six, right? 
Oh, at least. Uh, I was well down. I think I was one of the, the last fast bowlers left standing or that, that they hadn't tried um, in the team against England in that series. I don't know how many they tried, but they certainly would have tried five or six. Um, and then I finally got a go in Adelaide, which I think was the second last test. So I guess Bill Laurie would have been your skipper for the first time, Al. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I'd only ever played against him, I think, once um, in Shield cricket, and he made a great hundred, like a really gutsy hundred. He got, you know, he got hit a few times in the chest and body and legs and and everywhere, arms, uh, and he made this this uh, really resolute um, hundred. Uh, it was it was just a gutsy gutsy effort, and and he was obviously a bit of a hero. Yeah, and he was he was my first captain. Not the it, last one. No, well, that's right. I was going to say, we had the privilege of chatting to Ian Chappell for the podcast a few months ago. And I think Richie Beno once said that uh, in the 60s, everybody said yes. And in the 70s, Australians started asking why. And I guess that really was the dawn of a brand new era, wasn't it? Well, it was. And I think that that was worldwide anyway. Um, you know, it, there was a lot of unrest around the world um, in, in those times. Uh, and I think... You know, everyone just didn't, as you, as was said, they didn't just say, yeah, okay, no problem. Um, the questions were asked, and that started, I guess, a fair bit of angst between player and administrator, um, certainly in Australia, and I, I imagine around the world. So you could kind of feel that push and pull between the old and new sort of happening across society broadly, rather than just cricket? Other than cricket, I could. Um, I didn't notice it that much in cricket at the time. Um, or I, the only thing I can remember on reflection was that, you know, you were supposed to wear your suit and tie, you know, around down to the ground and, and I think into functions and things like that. And, and I think we tended to comply with that. Um, but in between times, no one, you know, dressed in suit and tie and things like that. It was the, the T-shirt brigade basically, and jeans came, started to come in under Ian Chapel. Reading about your life, you obviously, you know, the greatest fast bowler of all time. I, you might not say that, but I, I can certainly say that. And, I would. Uh, yeah. No, no. <laughs> I'll, I'll get to that and ask you who you think is soon. Um, but literally, you know, you take eight wickets against the rest of the world, and then you're literally working in a rubbish tip in Lancashire to pay for your, uh, your, your accommodation and board, right? Yeah, it wasn't quite like it was today. Um, yeah, yes, um, actually, I was, I was speaking, I think, to Jon Snow. Well, I, might have, I think it might have even been Jeff Boycott at the end of the series, and I, he suggested that I go to England to try and improve my, my game. Um, and so uh, I must have somehow got in touch with someone about, you know, made some inquiries and uh, I think a few West Australians were playing in the Lancashire League and Scottish League and um, minor, le uh, minor counties and stuff like that. And I think, you know, they probably got the word out for me and, and you know, we ended up, yes, in, in England. Um, the deal was incredibly £1,400 for the six months um, and they gave us a, a car, which I think was worth about 100, 100 quid in those days. It was a real banger. And we stayed in an, an old 
old house that they paid for. The rest of it we pay for our airfares from England for Helen and I. And well, I remember then they cost twelve twelve hundred pounds. So oh, we, wow. we were left. <laughs> we were left. Yeah, we, we didn't realise they're supposed to pay for that. Obviously, very naive. Um, and then, then you're supposed to get your 1400 quid or whatever on top of that. Well, I, you know, I fell for the three-card trick, and uh, we pay for our own airfares. We end up with 200 quid or something when we got there. Um, and then we we sort of thought we, we're going to have to have, earn some money here. So I got a job on a tip um, out of Hazlington on a way bridge, and Helen, we still really needed more, so Helen got a job working for a local transport company. Gee whiz, Dennis, how times have changed, eh? <laughs> Certainly. I mean, mind you, you know, it's all part of the journey, and, and I, you know, I really enjoyed the experience, and, and I'm sure Helen did too. Um, not only the working side of it, but obviously playing in different conditions yeah. with different different sort of different players, different attitudes than I'd I'd been involved with in in Australia in cricket. I always kind of think that whenever a new a current player reaches for the uh, the car keys to their sports car, they should say a little thank you to yourself and Ian Chapel and so forth for uh, how well, things have changed I, after that. Yeah, I, like, there was a few involved. And I, yeah, I think. Uh, you know, the other thing is I always say they should uh, just give a little thought to Kerry Packer because we can come up with an idea, but you need someone with the guts and determination and a truckload of money to uh, to make it work. And, uh, you know, he he was the guy that put it, put it all together and changed cricket forever. Yeah, and you were the guy that kind of had the, the germ of the idea, weren't you? You were talking, was it John yeah. Cornell, your manager, who other people would know as Strop maybe, and you said, we should yep. do an exhibition game for us for the players. Yep, yep. That's how that was the original seed of the of the idea was that um, we would play Australia because we were considered the best at that stage in the world versus the best of the rest in one game, one off game. Um, you know, probably in a, a major stadium somewhere, big crowd, big pay for the players as well. Um, there'd be television, um, and out of that. We, I, the idea was we do that one off, uh, and then we just play for Australia for the mediocre amount we were being paid then by Cricket's um, controlling board. And back then, it was a situation where literally the guy taking the ticket stubs on entry was getting more than the players, right? Well, certainly in, uh, I don't know about uh, at in Test matches, but certainly at the Wacker. Um, I think when I first started, it was seven bucks a day, um, a flat rate, so Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, whatever it was. And uh, the guy on the gate got more than, and the sightsman got more than us because they were, in those days, it was time and a half on Saturday and double time on Sunday. Well, there was no such thing in, in cricket. Um, playing for Australia, it was $200 when I started. Um, Less some expense, expenses, your own expenses, obviously, um, I think in those days we may have even had to pick up our laundry, which was quite a reasonable bill, you know, in those days because you, you had to keep your creams and everything clean. Um, and, yeah, that, it hadn't, I, I think that was sort of the same amount for about five, six years that I can recall. And it was the same going back to 1960, they were getting 100 quid. So, yeah, things uh, needed to change, and um, that was the vehicle. I thought it was interesting reading recently 
as somebody said, it may have even been yourself, that the thing about playing World Series cricket was if you were lacking form, you couldn't go back and play club cricket or a shield side and regain touch because you were playing well, that, against the greatest in the world all the time. That's exactly it. I certainly made that statement. Whether others did or not, I don't know. But, but that was a true fact. And that's something I found difficult um, was, was the fact that we were banned from all other, in the first year, banned from all other cricket, all grounds, all facilities. Um, so if you're out of form uh, against the best in the world and the West Indies and, and, and all of that, you, you, you could possibly stay out of form because there's nowhere to go. And then, you know, to, to try and practice in the nets, which is sort of a help with it, but not being the same as a contest, um, we were practicing on totally different wickets, hard wickets that we could get anywhere to practice on any, anything, you know, um, but yeah. they weren't turf generally. You've got a, a great love of the history of the game and uh, I'm not sure if you're a nostalgic person or not, but it must have felt awkward for you, to, I guess, to be out of the official side and did you feel you might lose your touch with all that history of the game? Yeah, look, that, uh, that I, I certainly tossed that around in my head um, a lot. Uh, I do love the history of the game, and I still read a lot about uh, the history going right back and players and situations, you know, the MCG and its history and, you know, all that, all of that. Um, I, I love it, and, and that was my true love, why I love cricket more than footy or athletics, was, was that nostalgia of that I saw of the game as being just phenomenal. And, uh, yeah, played heavily on my mind. Um, and, you know, to be um, sort of outcast from all of that um, hit pretty hard at the time. It's interesting. I saw a photo of um, you talking to Sir Donald Bradman at the centenary test match there. And uh, mm -hmm. I know that he gave Ashley Mallett some advice about his grip. Did he ever give you advice about what, how you played? Yeah, luckily enough, um, in my first test, which was Adelaide um, in, I think, 1971, 70, um, we were at a function. There was a function always, I think, a night or the, the two nights before whatever the game, the test match started, with both teams attending, and I think it was the Lord Mayor or... It was a Lord Mayor or reception or some reception, uh, Government House reception or something like that, and... And Bradman pulled me aside and said, could I have a few words with you? And, you know, I mean, I, I was as nervous as hell and, oh, yeah, yeah, so, you know. And so we went and sat down in a little place, little couple of chairs. And he said to me, Dennis, I just wanted to let you know um, there's been a lot going on in the newspapers and you've probably read them about a bumper war and that you were picked to compete with John Snow and co um, and to give it to uh, the Poms. He said, uh, I just want to let you know that that's not why we picked you. We picked you because we feel you're good enough to play uh, against England and bowl um, and just bowl normally. Um, don't get sucked into um, you know, a bumper war. He said, just, just bowl as you normally do. That's why we picked you. It was the best advice I could have got. Yeah. You know, given you have read a lot about the history of the game, if you had one ball to give to Bradman, what would you bowl him? Uh, gee, I've never had that put to me before. Uh, I don't. I don't really. I had never really thought about it, but I guess, like with any other great batsman, and he was the greatest. There's no doubt. Um, I think I would try and settle for a very good length ball around about off stump, uh, going away to the slips. Um, 
you know, that's the best ball you can bowl to any any batsman. Um, not a tail ender because he'll miss it. <laughs> but but uh, but for any very good batsman, you, you know, that's that's the best ball you can bowl to them. Um, I mean, they'll have other they'll have weaknesses, and that's not necessarily a weakness, but that's where you start. <laughs> Also, at the same period, you're talking to Harold Larwood and Lindwall. Um, you're a great share of your knowledge, obviously. I mean, you've been a coach for a long time. Uh, did those kind of guys from that generation share things with you? Oh, certainly. Um, and I tried to pick their brains as much as I could about fast bowling. Um, Davison was another one. Um, I, look, there were, I mean, they were just little, little things that there was nothing really that technical it was more more about you know i guess seam up and you know fingers behind the ball you know follow through um you know run up nice sort of uh, graduated run up um those sorts of things were the things that stood out to me um yeah i mean it was more about the fact that they were prepared to, to help in some way than than anything else that sort of made you want to improve um yeah, I mean, I, I when I coached later on, um, certainly the last half of my coaching career, I got more into the technical side of fast bowling, which I really love. Yeah. Um, and you know that, yeah, that that's an exciting side of it. There's there's the other side of it, obviously, but the technical side where you can help someone improve or help someone who's been injured and out of the game and get them back in. That that to me is is um, real coaching. That that's the ability to assess someone's action and find out where the glitches are and then show them where the glitches are and then and then help them um, be able to put it put you know, put it all right again. I went digging through my bookcase this morning and there's like, you know, the complete works of Shakespeare. There's uh Citizen Kane with um, Orson Wells' photocopied notes down the margins. Then there's The Art of Fast Bowling by Dennis Lilly. I mean, yeah, I mean you know, they're in good company, aren't they? I mean, that, that, that <laughs> book was kind of, you know, when I was a kid, that was like the Bible, that thing. Yeah, it was, it was interesting because I think I wrote it in 76, um, and I'm not sure that I, you know, I, I was that... I mean, I knew a fair bit about fast bowling by then, but I've learned a hell of a lot since. Um, yeah. So, um, I, but it's a good standard. Um, I've reread it myself, actually, and um, I, I'll never forget there was a young fast bowler from Sri Lanka who came to um, us at MRF when he was only about 19 years of age. Um, and... Uh, he was really quick, very quick bowler. Anyway, he had a career, very good career for, for uh, Sri Lanka. Um, and then the next thing I see, he turns up at MRF um, at the end of his career, and he he's comes to the there with the whole group. We used to get a lot of Sri Lankans come across as invited to, to uh, participate in coaching. Uh, over the years, 25 years, I was there. And this was towards the end of it, and... Uh, he, I, I, he came up and he said, oh, I've got these group of guys. I said, oh, great. And then he had this really tattered, shabby book under his armpit. I said, what's that? And I sort of roughly sort of saw, even though it was a bit ripped, this, you know, looked like the old book. <laughs> oh, I said, and I said, I said, let me see that. Anyway, he said to me, it was, the, it, was a, it was an old, shabby, tattered copy of The Art of Fast Bowling. And he said, Dennis, this is my Bible. And uh, yeah. at that, 
I immediately thought I've got to rewrite this and bring it up to date. Well, I've done it, but I don't think there's there's any need for it anymore. There's all these videos and YouTubes and all sorts of stuff, and uh, maybe it's superfluous to to uh, to coaching to bring out a new one. I don't know. You can't keep a YouTube video in your kit bag, can you? True. So, uh, true. You know. It, it's. Uh, I read somewhere that you said once that John Edrich was kind of like one of the best guys you got out. Was was that your prize wicket, or was it more people that we assume like Viv? Uh, no, he was the in the early days, and I only played against him when he was towards the end of his career, and I was at the start of mine. Um, in the early days, I found him the most difficult to get out. Um, he, because he had such a good knowledge of where his stumps were, which balls to let go, and some you're almost up appealing, uh, and he lets it go and it just misses the off stump by you know an inch or so, um, or missing leg. And and yeah, he he just seemed to have a total command of of where when and and when not to play the ball, um, mm. and very safe when he played it. I mean, you know, it's an impression from a young lad, I guess, but. Mm. Um, it certainly stayed with me. Uh, he wasn't the best player I ever bowled against by a long way, um, but yeah. I found him the most difficult to get out when I was when I was young. So I have to ask you. I remember being, oh, maybe I was a very young teenager, maybe even younger than that. And I was uh, standing out at the local shopping centre, and in those days, you'd remember from when you were a kid, you'd stand around a TV uh, in a Chandler's or whatever it might be, or a, a music shop, TV shop. No mobile phones, obviously, and everybody was crowded around working mm. and school kids watching the last ball of the day, uh, 1981 against the West Indies, and you come in bowling to Viv Richards. One of the, it's up there with Kieran Swim in Atlanta. It's one of the greatest things, you know, I've ever seen in sport. What was going through your mind running in to bowl that ball, do you recall? The thing was, I think we only made 190-odd, and Kim yeah. Hughes made... A brilliant hundred, like it's one of the best hundreds against that attack, uh, quality of attack that I, you know, I've ever seen, and uh, just brilliant. Um, and the, the wicket was a bit up and down, I think, um, or you know, certainly wasn't an easy wicket, um, and you know that was brilliant. And then we had about half an hour, I suppose, to go, um, and. My thoughts were, we just have to get a couple of wickets. You know, you just we just have to. So I almost ran from the sight screen, charged in as fast as I could, and just bowled as fast as I could. And we got a couple, and uh, I think they then sent in a night watchman. Um, uh, it was a long time ago. I think they sent in a night watchman, and, and they we did. got him. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and then and then Viv came in. And uh, I guess I really didn't sort of have thoughts that much of getting... I mean, I wanted to get Viv out, but I, I guess in my back of my mind, you know, he's a difficult bloke to get... You know, he's the greatest batsman in the world and difficult to get out. So I think I just wanted to bowl quick to him and probably just put in the back of his mind that it's not going to be an easy road tomorrow. Um, and then he chased one of a wider one, slightly wider one, and, and Viv loved love to get on top, you know, right from the start and assert, um, you know, that, that he was the best. And uh, and so one uh, slightly wider going away, I think it was, or might have been coming in a bit off the wicket, and he played a full-blooded shot at it 
slide inside edge onto the stumps and Viv was out. Well, the, the, the whole of the crowd erupted and we went off our brains. <laughs> we, we had had the West Indies four for five or something, uh, four for ten overnight or whatever it was. Um, and that means you're in with a real chance. But no, I don't know what was particularly going through my mind, nothing specific about the ball. And when people uh, bring it up, from time to time, I, I just say, uh, I must have hit a pebble on the on the uh, wicket and sort of deviated and uh, beat him, you know. <laughs> it, for those of us that, you know, only play backyard cricket, are you trying to get a batsman out every ball or is there sometimes a bit of a three-card trick where you're trying to set up a scenario? I think initially, um, when I first started playing, I think I wanted to get a bloke out every ball. Um, no doubt about that. Not much real uh, thought about setting him up came into it um, but certainly as I um, got further and further into my career uh, setting up a player was at the forefront of my mind and so you, you look for weaknesses you look for strengths and if you can bo- I always thought that if you can bowl at the top end of pace um, then you, you bowl basically sounds strange but you bowl to their strengths so if they're a front foot player, let's say, this is just making it simple, a front foot player, and they're, they're not so good on the back foot, my idea was to keep them on the front foot, and that's bowling their strength. It doesn't mean you're bowling mm-hmm. them to hit you for four. But you bo- so you keep the ball up, 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 and, and try and then set it up for the one, whether it be why the off stump slashing at it and you've got six, five or six slips in, in place, or short ball directed at their, um, you know, around about the throat or the one a bit around the head or a bit higher that they, a compulsive hooker. So you set up um, that one for, for later rather than, whereas a medium pace swing bowler maybe goes more for the weakness most of the time. Um, yeah. And that, that's probably the difference. Greg Chappell once said, you only ever gave him one ball to cut in the entire time he faced you, and he nicked it. Well, he was the greatest cutter, one of the greatest cutters of all time. Um, why would I bowl any to him? Um, <laughs> you know, what I did was I, I bowled, because I knew it was his strength, I bowled it just around about uh, ready for a cut, but never, never in, if I could help it, in the position to cut. Um, yeah. yeah, that's interesting. I never knew that. I, well, I, I obviously never talked to him about it, but I knew that he he, he hardly ever cut me. Well, if at all, yeah, cut me. But well, that was by he his. said he said once, yeah, and it went straight to the slips. <laughs> well, his eyes probably opened like like he'd seen a you know a, a ghost or something, and uh, he, he probably pushed too hard at it. So, so yeah, poor bugger. I feel for him. <laughs> no. <I don't. laughs> Uh, talking about intimidation and aggression, um, when I was obviously down the YouTube rabbit hole and I put in Dennis Lilly, poor old Viv Richards really copped it in that game, uh, Queensland versus uh, WA, and that um, was a McDonald's Cup final in 1976. Yeah, Gillette Cup, I think it what might have been, I'm not sure. Oh, no, 76, it could have been McDonald's. I don't know. Look, it all changed around with sponsors of the time. Um, yeah, in but, Perth, but, yeah. But it's the miracle match it's known as now, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, I think they dubbed it the Miracle Match, probably parade for West Australians like myself. Um, that's probably why we, we dubbed it that. I didn't dub it that, but, yeah, it was dubbed that by, I think, Channel yeah. 9 people in Perth. 
Yeah, I don't think we dubbed it that over here in Brisbane. No, but, no um, I'm sure. <laughs> but uh, you've got the two greatest batsmen in the world, Viv Richards and Greg Chappell, coming in. They've got, they've got to get like 70 to win. What's, you, mm. you, you really helped rally the troops yourself and Rod Marsh to get out there and do it, didn't you? Well, yeah. I mean, Rod was captain at the time, and um, he, uh, he, he was really pissed off, obviously, that we only made 70. We were one for 50 at one stage, and then we only made 70. Wow. Odd. And, um, you know, to be fair, uh, the ball was swinging around a fair bit, and so, you know, yeah, it, it, all of a sudden they got on the right wings, and we kept, we kept nicking them and playing silly shots, and they bowled bloody well. Um, and now, so Rod was really pissed off. There was a big crowd in at that. It, it, I think there was close on 10,000 people at, at the Wacker. And uh, Rod's uh, got up just before he went out and he's seething. And uh, he said, you know, pathetic. You know, I won't say, I don't know the exact words, but something along the lines, what a pathetic performance. Um, we've disappointed these people. Uh, the, all these people have come along to see us. Um, and uh, that was, he said, I've got three things to say. And that was the, the second. And the third was now, uh, no, no, sorry. And, and three things, that was the first. And the second was now, let, let's just, you know, really sort of drum up, get out there and let's give 150% and don't let these people down and ourselves. And he stormed out. And Rick Charlesworth, you know, the, the cerebral giant that he, he is, said to uh, as he's passing, Rick, he said, excuse me, Rod. He said, what was the third thing? Well, Rod just gave him, <laughs> gave him everything. <laughs> and uh, out we go. Um, and as we're going out, um, I just, um, as we were about to leave after that, that all happened, uh, I said, uh, that's all bullshit. We can win this. And uh, so that, that was, uh, or we will win this or something like that. Um, and, you know, whether it helped or not, I don't know. It certainly helped me. Well, you had your great ally, Rod Marsh, obviously behind the, the stumps, and didn't Rod say to you, if you can just bowl, was it 10 inches to Greg Chappell's left shoulder, I'll keep moving down the left side? Yeah, yeah. So the, he, he uh, suggests that the, uh, the trap should be set for Greg, um, that um, he, he would certainly have a, a go at hooking, um, and that he didn't, he, we we noted over the years, and certainly Rod had noted more than anyone probably, that Greg liked to get right inside the ball to hook, which you should, but he, he tended to follow it around and, and, and hit with the ball going yeah. over his shoulder. And uh, so we set... Um, someone down fine leg, which we, you normally do anyway. Um, and Rod, but he, he tends to, he tends to follow the ball around if he doesn't get it right or top edge, as he, if he doesn't get onto it. And so Rod said, put it if you can, put it just ten, as you said, about ten inches to the left of his shoulder, uh, and and just above his around his shoulder or just above his shoulder. He said, and, and I'll be in place to take the catch. Now, I mean, you know, I sort of, A, trying to get in that position isn't that easy. Um, and then to induce Greg or, you know, Greg be um, sort of ready to sort of play that shot. And then for Rod to get there and him to nick it rather than hit it full for six, which, you know, wouldn't have gone down too well. 
Um, yeah. all the, everything had to fall into place, and it did. Well, I think if you see Rod's reaction when he's moved over, oh, I reckon he's moved over, I don't know, probably moved over 15 metres, 10, 15 wow. metres. Yeah, and uh, so he was on the move as soon as I bowled it, or before <laughs> I bowled it, and, uh, and he was in perfect position <laughs> to take this this sort of catch from a ball that was, I think, slightly top-edged, and Rod took it up high um, above his head, I think, um, from, from memory. And, yeah, it was just the perfect setup, and, uh, you know, we, we were on a roll. I guess once Viv and Greg Chappell have gone, it changes the mood in the other opposing team, right? Well, yeah. I mean, you, yeah. I mean, I've, having been, you've been in the dressing room yourself, in the dressing room when your two best batsmen are out and, and you know, you're not many runs, uh, there's, you can sort of see the panic starting to, and feel the panic starting to set in. We could sort of see it in their eyes when they came out to bat. You know, you, you you could. I mean, you knew that they were un, totally unsettled and they'd lost that, uh, you know, that confidence. You know, it doesn't always uh, go your way, obviously. And uh, as I said, we had Ian Chappell on the podcast a few months ago and he was fantastic. And I asked him if he saw much of the Barry Richards 325 in a day. And he said to me that he, he, he spent half at the other end. Well, he did. And look, he never gets credit for it either. He made 170-odd at the other end. Um, and and I, probably in as good a time as Barry. Um, and he played a great innings. But no one remembers it. Poor bugger. Um, I mean, it was a great innings. Um, I mean, we we had a very, very good attack. Very good attack. And I, I can't remember exactly, but I know that Graham McKenzie and myself were in it. Ian Brayshaw, 10 for an all that. He got 10 wickets against the Vicks one time. There was Tony Locke and, I, and, and Tony Mann, two top spinners. Obviously, Lockie, one of the best yeah. ever. And there was another fast bowler, Bob Massey, maybe, I think. Now, oh, wow. It was a top, yeah, it was a top attack. And um, basically, a test attack. And... Um, Anyway, we, 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 uh, I can remember at one stage you looked up on the sight screen and every bowler, and I think it was towards the end of the innings, every bowler had 100 against their name except oh, for one. The, one. the one that didn't have 100 against his name, you can probably guess who that was of the bowlers. I was Tony Locke. Tony, Tony Locke. <laughs> the captain, he took himself off after about nine overs. <laughs> he wasn't going to have answers, no. It was just one, one of the great innings. And, and um, I can remember we played against South Australia not, you know, not that long earlier in the season or the season before, or it must have been that season, Barry Richards, and we got Barry out for pretty reasonable scores. I think Garth got him out both times, if I recall, and, and I could be wrong. But, for, you know, he, he didn't make many at all. And, uh, and he was having a great season for South Australia. And so when the first ball was bowled, I think Garth bowled the first ball. And it, and it, it beat the outside edge, um, and Marshy took it and said, here we go again. <laughs> well, he seems to regret saying that, let me tell you. It was the only ball that passed Barry Richards' bat till he got to 320-odd. And even the one that got him out, I don't think was anywhere near the, um, LBW. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think even Barry said himself he didn't think the decision was that good. Oh, that was terrible. 
uh, yeah, it's remarkable, isn't it? It's just stunning what he achieved. Uh, you wonder what he would have done if he had a full test career. He could have been the greatest of all time, or in the time I played, the greatest um, of that era. Um, and I'm, I'm pretty sure he would have been. There you go. I know you're a, you're a music fan, and uh, I, I remember reading somewhere, maybe even been in your, your book, that uh, you were playing in the West Indies and Mick Jagger's in the crowd watching you guys play. And uh, you guys got to catch up, I think, right, and spend a bit of time together? Yeah, well, I, we we sort of met him a few times in, in England, and so he was there, I think, recording uh, Walk and Don't Look Back uh, with Peter Tosh, I think it was. It's a great um, track, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, and, and he was just sitting in the crowd. So... Um, um, I'd seen him there. I went, you know, I said to Ian, you know, it's okay if uh, we invite him down for it because he got to uh, clear it with the captain to bring anyone to the rooms. Okay, if we bring him down um, afterwards, if you'd like to come in and have a drink with the boys, he, he said, oh, yeah, great. You know, and uh, Mick just loved it. Um, he was over the moon. He loved, loved cricket. And um, he was over the moon. And, yeah, we, we sort of, you know, caught up a couple of times on that tour. Are you a big Stones fan? Very big. Um, one of my f- absolute, absolute favourite groups, um, if not my favourite. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm, a, I'm a big fan uh, of their music. Just love it. Do you lean towards the 60s Stones or the 70s or beyond? Oh, all of it. I'm, yeah, right. I just really, I just love their stuff. So, um, yeah, I mean, look, Stones, Clapton, Elton John, Creedence, Eagles, U2... So even Simon, you know, Simon and Garfunkel, Fleetwood Mac, Carly, Simon, Simply Red, Animals, Rita Franklin, BGS, Beatles, Dylan, Springsteen, Ferry, Hendrix, Buddy Holly. Have I said enough? Diamond, Crowded House, Bowie, Rod Stewart, Dido, Katie Lang, Dire Straits, Doctor Hook, Santana, Elvis, Peter Gabriel, Eurythmics, Nilsson. Um, oh, who else can I think of? Um, uh, Van Morrison, um, let's see, Police, Sting, Roberta Flack. Have I said enough? Paul Kelly. No, you, you the playlist. ACDC, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so what did you guys be playing uh, on the tour bus back in the day? Well, see, I, I was in charge, uh, well, put in charge of recording music on tapes in those days. You record from vinyl yeah. to tapes, which you weren't allowed to do. And and I was in charge of that, so I I made up all the music for um, you know for the uh, dressing room, and uh, you know if we had a sort of a sat went back to to the team room room and had music and a few drinks afterwards, that was my job. So I I really got into a whole lot of different music. I'd be great to see some of those uh, DK Lily uh, cassette tapes up on Spotify, wouldn't it? The, the playlist. <laughs> Well, they're 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 a bit different. They're um, they're, they're sort of they're pretty mainstream though, you know. So um, you know, all those ones I've just mentioned, you know, with your Grace Joneses and Taylor, Randy Crawford, uh, Tom Jones, Bill Withers, China Crisis, you know, Robbie Williams, uh, George Ezra, you know, all that sort of stuff. So um, yeah, I'd love to mix it all up um with no rhyme nor reason um, and, and yeah. you know, i just loved doing that at night sitting at home you know I'd, I'd sit there and record music for two or three hours at night and the new new two or three tracks um of 
120, I think there were 120 tapes in those days. I'd mainly record on 90 to 120. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) And we'd take along a, you know, sort of a bit of a um, sound box, whatever was sort of the go at the time or that we could afford. And uh, that, that was, that was it for the tour. And, and also, too, as I'm sure you'd admit, Dennis, there's a real art in making a mixtape, isn't there? You've got to get the balance right. You don't just put them in any random order. Well, sure, and I've got to tell you, it was random order. It was just whatever came into my mind, whatever I thought of at the time. Um, you know, but I tended to, mainly LPs, and I tended to sort of uh, just take one track, my favourite track off each of them. Um, and I had, I had, that was my hobby. You know, I didn't, didn't drink or smoke, so the old no drugs, so all I did was buy LPs. Um, and so, yeah, I, I had a heap to choose from, heap to choose from. So given when you were born, sort of 1950-ish, you would have caught, um, you know, that, the British invasion. Did many of those bands get to Perth when you were a kid? Not many, not not to Perth. Um, we tended to miss out. Um, you know, we saw a lot later, but they were later groups or the Stones and these ones that sort of, and Van Morrison's and stuff that sort of, you know, kept kept on keeping on did you get to see um acdc in the 70s with bon or, or the easy beats no. no and i became an acdc fan much later in life funnily enough um i only really appreciated them later um which was yeah strange but um yeah probably only from about the age of 45 50 onwards that i really got into yeah. akadaka I was lucky enough, because of my love of music, um, Helen, my wife, and, and our kids, Adam and Dean, bought me a jukebox for my 40th birthday. So an old-fashioned jukebox, yeah. So we, we, and then they collected a whole lot of old, old 45s from, you know, around the op shops and, and all of that, um, and put a whole jukebox together with my favourites. Um, and I've still got it. So I'm 70, 71, and I've still got the jukebox, and I still play it. And, um, Fantastic. I love it. It's a great sound. I was going to ask you how the back's held up these days, because famously you broke down the West Indies um, with the back problems. Then, miraculously, you repaired through all that mm. hard work and training. How's it sort of for you now at 71, the back and the knees? Um, look, everything's breaking down. There's no doubt about that. Um, and... You know, one knee in particular, it's had lots of operations on it. You know, I don't know, eight, nine, ten operations, I've lost count. Um, and, but that that one's in, you know, that's not in great shape <clears throat> um, at all, but I, I'm surviving with it and, I, you know, I, I can get through and I still, I'm not allowed to run anymore, but I can I can walk fast with it, so that's that's okay. My yeah. shoulders are just starting to, to um, break down a bit, the arthritis and stuff like that, so that's, not good going forward, but um, um, they're, they're an ongoing um, thing that I, I've got to keep uh, getting checked. Um, back, neck, it's not great, but uh, the back is serviceable, but, you know, it, it's, it has its moments, but it's, I can generally get through, um, and I still exercise a lot to, to sort of help the back. Um, so that... that you know, for what I've done and, and all the training and all the number of balls that I bowled full tilt, I reckon I'm going okay. Um, yeah. So, 
Yeah, I mean, there's there's problems there, and they're not going to get any better. Uh, they're only going to get worse. But uh, you know, I've had, a, I've had a good life. Yeah, it's. I guess for a person like you, people. Some people suggest you're the fittest person to play cricket for Australia at one point. I guess staying fit. Because your grandfather was a, a boxer, right? Or he trained boxers. Boxing coach. Yeah. So getting fit was just instilled in you from an early age. Absolutely. Um, and look. You know, I used to go and watch Dad uh, train at footy, um, and Mum was a very good tennis player. Um, their grandfather, as I say, you know, boxing trainer, coach. Um, you know, it was probably in my blood. Um, and my my brother was a very very good footballer and cricketer, a better cricketer than me. Um, my sister. Um, she was very good um, basketball, netballer, um, and athletics. Um, she, we, we don't know how good at cricket she was, batting or bowling, but she was the best fielder um, we'd ever seen. <laughs> she was only allowed to field. <laughs> it was terrible. But um, yeah, sharp fielder. Let me tell you. Uh, <laughs> so it was in it was in our genes. But um, my grandfather was the influence. On, the, uh, on me as far as fitness was concerned. He just believed very much in you. You train so hard that you push yourself to this stage where he says you get what they call a second wind in those days. And the second wind basically was, if people, younger people don't understand out there, the second wind is where you go so, you know, you, you push on a run or your exercise or whatever to the stage where you just think you can't do any more. But you keep going on through that and you actually cruise for a while, funnily enough, but uh, it mm. just seems to become easier. And then, of course, you do hit your limit. But um, he called it the second win. What he's saying is basically you've got to train that hard that when the going the tough the, the going gets tough, you know, you you get you get going, you know, and you're you're ready for it. You've experienced it. You've experienced it as bad as it can be, um, and and you can get through it. That that was his his theory. It's interesting uh, watching old commentary and some of your games, how often people like Richie might say or Bill would comment how you would come back after the break and take a wicket after lunch, after tea, whatever it might be. And, and other people have said too that part of your genius as a bowler was that you could get something out of dead wickets. You know, yeah, you, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, I don't know what it was. I, I, um, I never believed too much in going out and having the wicket before a game. I couldn't see any point in it. Mm. Um, what what you served up is what you have to deal with, um, and I I knew I guess in the back of my mind I always knew that I'd trained for dead wickets. I trained hard as I did not for the the fast whack whacker bouncy uh, wicket, but I trained for the the flat dead uh, wickets that you often got in the eastern states. And, and the reason for that was that I had to be fit enough and strong enough that I could. Um, be going when when you really needed it and the other belief which came from Pop my Pop Halifax the, 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 the boxing coach was that you know you, your, your opponent if he's not as fit as you if you train harder than him and you're fitter then you're going to be in much better shape towards the end of a day or the end of a session or the end of a uh, boxing uh, contest um, and, and that's where your opponent is starting to really lose concentration, lose fitness, lose strength. And so he believed that you had to be bowling, in my case, at your fastest. You could bowl your fastest ball at the end of the day, which meant yeah. 
obviously that you could bowl fast all the way through and he believed that batsmen sitting around in a dressing room um, that, you know, if not many wickets have fallen because it's a flattish wicket, um, that they, their concentration goes, that they're relaxed, they think they should be scoring runs, they go out there and get flamboyant or lose concentration and you're in there ready for them like, like a, a, a tiger waiting for someone to sort of make a mistake of jumping into their cage. And that was, yeah. that was the way he thought about it. And it made a lot of sense to me. And you often famously played with injuries too, didn't you, for not wanting to relinquish mm. your spot in the team? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, yeah, it's, it's sort of the old saying, someone said it to me, and I don't know who it was, but never give a sucker an even break. And, uh, you know, I, I, uh, if I could get out on the park and felt I could do the job, um, even though I knew I had an injury then, I, I wasn't about to let someone else take my place. And if he got five or six wickets, then how do I, you know, I've got to get back in again. That, that was my, my mm. thought process. Well, it's remarkable seeing footage you've, of you from 81. You, you're recovering from double pneumonia and you're bowling for Australia. Yeah, yeah. I, I copped it in England um, right early on the tour. It was freezing cold there. And stupidly, I, I almost know when I got the chill. It was the end of a, a session I had. I think Marcia and I were in London. Um, we might have got there a little earlier than the others. I'm not sure. But we were doing some training sessions and um, I never forget that um, a journalist came down and made an arrangement to sort of catch up and I sat there because I was so sort of sweaty and hot afterwards and had you know a couple of jumpers on and long johns and the whole lot and I sat there because the sun had come out and I, and I did the interview and I remember getting really really cold freezing yeah. cold and and chilled to the bone and yet you know, I I didn't do anything about it. I was, you know, sitting out yeah. at the nursery at uh, yeah, the nets at, at Lords, and and then you know it just all hit. Now whether that it was that or I, I must have got because I had viral and bacterial pneumonia, so I had double pneumonia um, as it turned out. So I don't know what how that worked. Unbelievable. How you get it. But that that was the that was the only thing I could think of was that. You know that sort of chilled right through to the bone, which my grandfather said you should never let, ever let that happen. Change your shirts, make sure you dry. You know all that sort of stuff. And yeah, anyway, it happened. Yeah, yeah. And I was on antibiotics the whole. Yeah, I was on, on antibiotics the whole tour. Um, uh, and you know, I, I I sort of I missed the the sort of first part of of the tour through hospital and rest and stuff like that. So, yeah, it, 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 was, uh, it was quite harrowing, and, and I never felt 100% at, at any stage. You certainly came back all guns blazing when you got your health back, that's for sure. Yeah, well, I, yeah, that, and I think there's no doubt that the strong antibiotics um, obviously helped, and, you know, the fact that I was very fit beforehand, um, that, 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 I'm sure that helped. It's funny, watching the video recently of Headingley 81 and your batting, watching it now, you think, they can win this with Dennis at the crease. It's like yeah. so close. Well, I believe we could too. And, um, you know, I just... And then I played this shot, which I think, you know, I had sort of... I don't know, I had four lined up through mid-wicket and, uh, and, and it got the bottom of the bat or whatever it was and it sort of went up in the air and, and I thought, oh, I'm still a chance here. Gat can't catch. <laughs> Gat, yeah. 
And um, anyway, he pulled off a great catch, and, and that was it. Yeah, I, I think I may have even second top scored. I'm not sure. I haven't, haven't ever had a look at the... Um, um, I know, it's like, you know, you, you, you were just dragging us toward victory there. It's funny, it's also on YouTube, there's you uh, not having it fall short and landing in the fielder's hands, but landing in the crowd when you get the 73 against England. You must have been thinking there's a ton here. Oh, <laughs> I was convinced I was going to get a ton. Maybe I got too confident. I'm sure I probably did. <laughs> but yes, um, it was a day well, out. Well, you're not out, weren't you, I think? Oh, I might have, but yes, that's yeah, right. Not out. Yeah, look, you're dead right. I think I know what happened. I do remember now, and I always say to Ross Edwards, you know, because Ross, we were five or six for seventy or eighty or something, and uh, maybe a bit, uh, maybe we were seven for if I came anyway. Whatever it was, we were, you know, not many. And Ross Edwards was uh, was just in and going along, you know, quite nicely, and and he kept losing partners. And I came into him and I said, Roscoe, oh, he must have been fifty or sixty. And I said to him, Roscoe, I'll see you. Don't worry, I'll see you through the hundred. You got no problems, you know. Just yeah, being a smart aleck. And um, anyway, he got his hundred. And and when he got his hundred, I said, now it's your turn to see me through. And I said, I, and when he got out, I never forgave him. I said, I got you through. <laughs> anyway. It, it, is Cassius Clay still your sporting hero? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, always will be. Um, uh, he, he was just amazing. Um, I just... The way he trained, um, the way he he was just you know very confident. Um, he 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 could you know tell him when he was going to get him. Um, just skillful as well for a big 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 man. Just such an athlete. Um, no no he was he was he, as he, he called himself. I think the greatest. He was the greatest in my mind. Yeah. So- so, Dennis, before we go, um, it's been great to chat to you about this sort of journey of your, your career. Um, what was the wicket you prized more than anybody's? Well, I, I loved getting Boycott out because he hated, hated getting out and never thought he was out. Um, he, uh, he, um, he, he prized himself on not, not, uh, you know, not, being, not being got out by good bowlers. So, um, him... Um, Viv Richards, obviously, Greg Chappell, um, just uh, they're just the ones that quickly come to mind. There are obviously others, but probably um, if I had, but it, there's two different ones. The best batsman in the world, um, and then if I was to pick him, I'd say out of Barry and Viv, the two Richards. Funny enough, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and I'd I'd think, and I'd say Viv. Certainly, and the guys I played against, except I didn't play enough against Barry. I never played any any tests against Barry Richards, so I can't tell whether he would have been the best. But he, in my mind, I always suspect that he would have been on a par with Viv, and maybe maybe yeah. possibly better. I don't know. Um, yeah. But but you know, Viv for the ones that I played a lot against, um, he was amazing. But then I, I'd say if I had to have a batsman and play. For my life, okay, so against all bowlers, all conditions, um, any situation, you know, five for, for five for 60 or five for 20 or whatever, um, or, uh, or otherwise, um, to play for my life, it would have to be Ian Chappell. Um, I just think he, he was just the ultimate fighter. 
And then when he got on top, he became the butcher and he just tore him apart. So um, he ended to, to, to actually bat for my life, yeah. definitely. Yeah, and wicketkeeper, obviously Rod Marsh. Yeah, absolutely. No doubt. Yeah, what a team you guys made. Yeah, yeah. Oh, look, he was just a... I, I, I don't think I ever saw him miss one there. I mean, he, he must have, but... Yeah, he just took took everything that he he should have taken, and and a, a lot that he should never have taken. <laughs> I got one last question for you um, before we go, if you don't mind. Yeah. Um, sort of, it was talk. I don't know if it was an urban myth or not that uh, Alan Border had approached you like nineteen eighty nine, eighty eight ish, and suggested maybe you might consider you know getting fit and coming back to the Australian team. Absolutely true. They were having problems uh, at that stage. The bowlers weren't able to sort of really bowl that way, even one side of the wicket sort of thing. They were they were having troubles. They were new, young young guys. And AB just said, uh, I'd like you just to come and play for one more season, um, sort of stand at mid-on, mid-off, um, be in the dressing room, obviously, because you're part of the team, yeah. um, and, and just mentor these guys. Um, and that was... Um, that was the approach. Um, I, I trained up, uh, trained as hard as I'd ever trained in my life, actually, and uh, and got very, very fit and uh, didn't hear from Alan again. Um, then I, I kept uh, going and I started playing club cricket uh, to try, you know, obviously to, yeah. to try and get back into shield cricket. And Anyway, um, the... I'll never forget that I had a whole lot of wickets for best best performance I think in great cricket forever. And um, anyway, I, I didn't get picked. And I, I didn't sort of, yeah, I didn't say anything. And uh, I think they won the shield of the, the team the uh, year before as well, WA. And and then um, they got an injury or two, and I still didn't get picked. So I, for the first time in my life, I'd never done it. I fronted the selectors, and one yeah. of them in particular. And I said, you know, what do I have to do? Yeah, and uh, he said, uh, oh, uh, "Oh, you know, hummed and hard and everything." And uh, he said, "Oh, he, uh, oh, you know," and he just really couldn't give me an answer. He's a lovely guy, and um, yeah. anyway, I found out later that uh, it had been um, instructed from um, further up that I was not, not to be picked um, under any circumstance, um, that I would have been a bad influence on, on the team. And that came from very high up. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I, I then just thought, I'm not wasting all this. So I went and played for Dazzy, and, and then I played for Northants. And, um, yeah, so that was just really because I didn't want to waste, waste the, all that hard work that I'd, I'd put myself through. So, yeah, I was left in the lurch. How crazy is that? Well, you know, I, you know, he obviously get it okayed by um, the person that was um, that mattered. Yeah, I don't know. That's all I can assume. Yeah, yeah. You, you were such a big part of the culture um, because you know back then I kind of think Australia lived in what we call the monoculture. We all we only had four channels of TV. We all watched Countdown on Sunday night. We all watched the cricket, the Sullivans, etc. It did. What was it like for you to be that famous? You were kind of famous beyond cricket uh, in Australia at that time. You were as famous as Bob Hawke or anybody else. Uh, was it intrusive or well, could you kind of, you know, get yeah. away? Yeah. 
No, no, it wasn't. It wasn't uh, intrusive. Um, it 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 was really. Um, it's not like it's, I don't think it's like today. I think people um, respected your your privacy and your distance and the distance and stuff like that. Um, they, yeah, you didn't. Yeah, no, it, it was it was pretty good. And and fortunately, you know, I didn't have any or many detractors that you know wanted to have a go at me or or give me a hard time or. I mean, most of it was just wanted to come up and say, you know, love your your cricket and you know keep it up and you know saw you at such and such and and I mean they were they were you know all very very good and and they would say their bit and and um, you, you know you'd have a chat for a little while and then they they sort of generally just go so it it was not intrusive at all. Um, so yeah, no, I mean the only time it was intrusive and it happened a few times was just when, when you're with your family. And you're trying to get a bit of quiet time. I mean, I, I can remember one instance, if you've got time, and yeah, yeah. cut this out if you, if you need to, but um, we were at Helen myself and a couple of friends were at a small restaurant in Perth and um, there was a couple of ladies over at another table and they sort of kept looking over and then finally when our meal had come and they were leaving, they came up and said, stood uh, next to me and said, are you Dennis Lilly? And I said, oh... Um, I can be, or something like that, you know. <laughs> sort of, and uh, and uh, I said, okay, who had the bet? You're just being sort of, you know, yeah. having a joke over. Who, who, who won the bet? Who said yes and who said no? Yeah. And one one said, oh, such and such. And I said, oh, well, um, yep, if you said yes, you win. And the other one said, show, show us your ID. <laughs> uh, I said, pardon? <laughs> well, you know, show us your ID. I said, look... I think I've been, you know, fair enough, and I've, you know, I've, I've told you, um, and you know, I, and well, they stormed out. You'd be, you know, such and such, and I said, I'm thinking, hang on, you know, why do I have to show my ID? I mean, you ask a question, I give you an answer. Isn't that good enough? So yeah, sometimes it gets a bit rough. The people that we were with were amazed. They're friends, and they just had to believe it. That's funny. Because I guess when you started out, Dennis, you had one static camera at one end of the ABC yeah, in black and yeah. white. And then by the time you finished, it's multiple cameras in full colour beamed into every lounge room all over the world. Yeah, yeah. And then so that's how it changed. And, and obviously that came about through World Series cricket. And, um, you know, I, I have no doubt that was a shock to the establishment and, and we were outcasts for a long, long time. Um, I, I think people will all agree now it was best best for the game in the you know going forward so um yeah it, it was dif- a difficult time for us as players but it was it was for a reason um to improve players lot um and we're not just talking money but we're talking a whole lot of conditions um so yeah it, it, it was worthwhile well thanks for everything you did dennis because Watching you play as a kid, and for a lot of people around the country, you brought everybody a lot of joy. Thanks, Sean. And um, look, you know, I really enjoyed the the, the whole trip. Um, I still can't believe it. I, I think it was another person, but I I really enjoyed it and and um, loved loved being involved and playing for our country. Fantastic. Well, well I'm going to go back to the artifacts bowling now and try and get fit again and uh, take some inspiration <laughs> from the chat. <laughs> I love it. 
Wow, Dennis Lilly, so great to have him on Time to Talk. When you get five minutes, I suggest you go down the YouTube rabbit hole and just type in Dennis Lilly Viv Richards, and I can guarantee you'll probably spend a couple of hours in there. If you're enjoying Time to Talk, please subscribe and give us a rating. And if you're a cricket fan, uh, just dig a little deeper and you'll see there's a Time to Talk episode with Ian Chappell. We'll see you back here very soon.